Welcome to Friday Q&A Live, or Mike Ash Rambles About Stuff. I'm your host, Mike Ash. If you don't know who I am, you can find my blog at mikeash.com, and I'm also on Twitter at Mike Ash. This episode brings a new development. My friend Jose is editing the audio. Before I did this myself, but I put out a query last time to see if anyone was interested, and he raised his hand, so he's going to be editing the audio today and hopefully in the future. All good aspects of the show from here on out, are therefore due to him. All blame for bad things is, of course, still due to me. On today's episode, we're going to do a really quick iPhone X review, talk about iPhone performance testing and a little utility I put together for that, and then we've got a sequel to last episode's talk about optionals, and I'm going to talk about types in terms of set theory. So let's get started. iPhone X or iPhone X, I still can't figure out which way to say it. I know which way is official, I just can't figure out which way I like to say it. Anyway, I ordered one on launch day, like I'm sure most of you did. Uh, The store was down for me for about eight minutes, which is a very short amount of time, but by the time I got in, my delivery date was November 17th through 24th. Bummer, right? And then Saturday came along, and a friend told me that he found one in a local store, so I started stalking the local stores as well. It was pretty tough to find, but uh, persistence eventually paid off. I treated it just like a fun game. I wasn't super urgent to get one and didn't really need one, but... It was, it was a fun thing to do to just check the thing every so often, and uh, one showed up, and I reserved it and grabbed it on Wednesday. So I got that, canceled the order online, and I've been messing with it since then. And if in case anyone is on the fence about it, it's really nice. It's super expensive, obviously, but it's, it's really great. The screen is wonderful. I don't personally mind the notch. You may be different. Face ID is kind of crazy. It took me several days to get over the feeling that the phone was broken somehow, like I had accidentally removed the passcode from it altogether. It was no security because it just kind of works. And you don't notice it until something goes wrong because, for example, it doesn't work in landscape mode or someone else tries to unlock it or something like that, and suddenly it refuses to unlock. And you'd say, oh, right, it does does have security on it. So I'm a big fan. Uh, I was skeptical when I first heard about it, but it's great. It's really nice for authenticating things on the phone as well. Like I've got an SSH client, which locks sessions behind biometric authentication, things like 1Password. On my previous phone, they were pretty smooth because they worked with Touch ID. So I'd go in and it would bring up the little thing and I'd touch and it would unlock. But there's that's a little bit of a pause there to touch the fingerprint sensor. Now you don't have to. As long as it's pointed at your face, it works. And so that's, that's been really nice. And it's so fast. It's, it's great. Obviously, you know, we knew this would happen. But as an upgrade over my 6 Plus, which I spent a lot of time complaining about before, got really slow with iOS 11, and restoring it helped, but it was still not the greatest. So um, it's been really nice to have a fresh new phone that's super fast and making life a lot more pleasant as far as using my phone goes. So speaking of speed... I just put out a GitHub repository today as of the day I'm recording. This will be a couple days in the past by the time this thing goes up. But it's a GitHub repository which has a utility in it and a test plan for how to basically record a video of your phone going through some common user tasks. I always wondered, everybody complains about their phones getting slower over time. I complain about it too. But there's always that question in the back of my mind. Is this actually happening or is this just perception? Is it nostalgia? Something like that. Maybe it really does happen, but how much of it is nostalgia? And I always wondered, what what is actually the reality there? You know, I wish I could go back in time and use my 6 Plus when it was new and compare with how it is today so I could see what, what, what kind of a difference there really is. So 
you know, my time machine's in the shop, so I couldn't do that. But I figured I'd do the next best thing, where if I record a kind of a standardized video today, then I can go back and compare with that video in the future. So right now I can't tell, but you know, if if in three years my iPhone 10 is, uh, I'm I'm complaining about how slow it is, then I can go back and compare with what I've recorded today and see what's going on. So the whole idea of this repository is to keep a bit of a record of these things and then make it somewhat reproducible so we can go back and do it again and compare. So there's a test plan. You follow that test plan while recording the device, make a video, and then you come back. I wrote a little Swift program where it basically just asks you for some metadata and then guides you through giving it timestamps at various points in the video. It saves the whole mess as JSON, so it's in a nice readable format. And then it will go through and compute the deltas, basically figure out how long the various operations took, render it as a nice markdown table, which you can then throw up on GitHub and see the whole thing. So I recorded my 6 Plus and my iPhone X And I'll be able to record the iPhone X again in the future if it starts feeling slow. So maybe in a year or two, I can come back to it, try it again, and maybe we can finally see if this is a real phenomenon or not. So check it out on GitHub, uh, github.com slash Mike Ash, and then uh, you'll find the repository from there. Give it a try if you feel like. If you think that you've got something that would be valuable to contribute there as far as testing a device, then uh, feel free to submit a pull request or just mess around with it if you like or view my results. Last episode, I talked about optionals and different ways of thinking about them. And their basic premise is that they add a nil value, sort of a placeholder for no value, to the set of legal values to any type. And a lot of the difficulty that people have with optionals is because other languages don't treat optionals as their own thing, they mix the concept up. Like C makes all pointers optional but no scalar values other than pointers are optional. So ints are not optional, pointers are optional, doubles are non-optional. And we internalize this mix, this mixing together of concepts so much that it's hard to separate them out again. And this is actually an aspect of, uh, of a more generalized approach to thinking about types in terms of set theory. And yes, that's set theory. So hold on to your butts. We're going in and we're going to talk about types and set theory. And I promise, well, no, I don't promise. This this might be just as boring as you think it is, but I'll try not to. We'll see. So you can think of a type as describing a set of acceptable value. Simplest possible example, almost simplest possible example. Bool accepts either true or false. That's it. Its entire universe is two values. And that's it. You can't put a three into a bool. You can't put hello there into a bool. It only accepts true or false. So it's a set with cardinality two. It's got two elements in it. You can think of, for example, uint eight as being a set of values. That particular set are, is all the integers between zero and 255. The string type, for example, represents the set of all possible sequences of characters, where a character is a complex Unicode thing we won't get into, but we have a decent intuitive sense of what that means. The int type is all integers from negative 2 to the whatever power up to 2 to the whatever minus 1. And uh, I mentioned that bool is almost the simplest possible thing. I say almost because there are simpler things. You've got the void type in Swift, which has a single possible value, which is an empty tuple. You can create types in Swift which actually have no possible values whatsoever. There's a built-in one called never, which is used to indicate that a function doesn't return. That's just a type that has no possible values. But bool is the first one that actually can have multiple values, but only has two. And then we go from there. So types are sets in this sense. Now, if we're looking at it from this perspective, what are structs? All right, we've got these simple values like bool and int and, and string. 
Then what if you make a struct that has like an int and a string in it? The answer is that structs are set to multiplication. So for example, if you have a struct containing an int and a string, then the values you can put into this struct are all possible pairs of int and string. So you can put in three and hello, or four and hello, or four and world, that kind of thing. So all the possible values for int combine with all the possible values for string, and you get all the possible pairs. Those are the values that can be placed into this struct, and so that's the set that this struct represents. It's the Cartesian product of the int set and the string set. If you've got a struct that contains three ints, that's basically the Cartesian product of the int set with itself with itself. And the result is the set of all possible integer triples, understanding that integer in this case means the restricted range of int, not mathematical integers. If you've got a struct that contains two strings, then that represents the set of all string pairs. So it's the Cartesian product of string with itself. So this is nothing too remarkable so far. It's, it, I'm sure it makes sense if you think about it. You may have never thought about it like this before, but if you understand sets and you understand the idea of a Cartesian product or taking all possible pairs, that uh, I think that makes a lot of sense. We use structs. We understand structs pretty well, I think. So then the interesting question from there is what about enums? Because we've all used structs or something like structs for ages if we've been programming in other languages before. But most of us, I think, have not used anything like Swift's enums. So does this tell us anything about enum? And in particular, of course, the interesting kind of enum in Swift is enums with associated values. The regular kind of enums that are just empty cases, those are less interesting. Those are kind of just almost like integers. But when you add associated values, enums take on this whole new life and they become very interesting. So what does this idea of types in terms of set theory tell us about enum? So an enum with an associated value or with associated values on its cases can contain values of the first type or the second type or the third type or and so forth. So what is that? That's a set union. So structs give us a set product between two sets and then enums give us a set union. So for example, let's say you've got an enum that has two cases. The first case has an integer, second case has a string. So this enum can hold all integers and all strings, not simultaneously. It's one or the other. So int represents a set of all of the integers within a certain range, and string represents the set of all sequences of characters. And now this enum that we're creating represents the set of all integers within a certain range or all character sequences. And so the idea here is that you're basically doing a set union. So you've got the set of ints and the set of strings, and by making this enum with these two cases for int and string, you are creating a new set, which is the union of int and string. All values in either of those sets are now valid values for your enum. Of course, in Swift, you can also create cases that have the same associated value type. You might have uh, an enum with two cases, and they're both ints with uh, associated value types, int. And then you're basically saying that your enum can hold an int plus some arbitrary label, where that case is an arbitrary label. You might have int int string, so that means that the universe of possible values for your enum is string or int plus some arbitrary tag that goes along with it. So if you've got cases with associated types A, B, and C, that means you can hold any valid A or any valid B or any valid C. Now you may have heard the term algebraic data types. It comes up from time to time when talking about Swift. It kind of became all the rage once Swift came out in, in certain circles, people talking about it. If you have heard of algebraic data types but weren't quite sure what it means, this is exactly what it means, thinking of types in terms of sets. 
So in the language of algebraic data types, structs are product types. So that means the set of valid values is the product of the sets that it contains. So that means they accept every possible combination of the things they contain. And then enums are sum types. And that means that the set of valid values is equal to the sum or the union of the sets it contains within. So they accept anything from one set or the other set or the third set and so forth. So tying it back into optionals, what about optionals? The optional type is an enum, as you may know. It's got two cases. So it's got sum and none. Sum has an associated value, which is a generic value, and then none has no associated value. And so it's a sum type, just like every other enum with associated values. And what it does is it takes the generic type that you give it, and then it adds none or nil to the set of allowed values. So tying it back into set theory, optional takes a set and adds a single extra value, which is nil, which is a placeholder for nothing here. And you can expand this to think about enums and associated values in general, not just optionals. So next time you're thinking about enums and associated types and you're confused about them and you're not sure how to use them, you can think about them in terms of set theory and everything will become clear. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe this will help or maybe this will confuse. If it helps, then do that. That wraps things up for this episode. Thank you very much for listening. If you enjoyed this, please subscribe if you haven't already. Also, if you enjoyed this and enjoy my writing, visit my website, mikeash.com, and buy my book, mikeash.com slash book. Audio editing today, and hopefully in the future, was by my friend Jose. All credit to him for the good parts, and all blame to me for the bad parts. As usual, if you have a topic that you'd like to see me cover here on the podcast or on my blog, please send it in to mike at mikeash.com. Talk to you next time.